This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. That was basically a tip from somebody who said, uh, you need to look at all of the public court filings in this specific uh, divorce case. Investigative reporting is no easy task. You know, my main worry was that if, if I, I did talk to him, if he contradicted what he had said in the under oath, then, you know, what, what do I do then? I guess I just present both versions of, of whatever he said. The outcome, however, benefits the public. So to track all that was kind of a nightmare, and basically it's just uh, a matter of organizing and everything. The investigative reporting process, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. Regardless of what your job is, if you're doing it well, you tend to make it look easy. But people often don't realize the time, effort, and training that goes into it. Our job is investigative journalism, and it's no different for us. The extensive time and resources required to engage in long-form reporting make it hard for many news organizations to make such a commitment. But when they do, the public typically learns of important things, things they would not have known about otherwise. Earlier this year, we learned that a district court judge in northwest Iowa had a practice of allowing attorneys involved in the case to write his opinions for him. We only learned of it and the scope of the practice through the work of Des Moines Register reporter Clark Kaufman. Iowa Watch Summer 2018 intern Lily Bolke spoke at length with Kaufman in July 2018 for a story you can read at iowawatch.org. Here is part of their conversation about his reporting on this story and others. Retired Iowa 3B Judicial District Court Judge Edward Jacobson from Plymouth County admitted under oath in a fall 2017 deposition that hundreds of his rulings throughout his career were ghostwritten by attorneys of the winning party. Often, the opposing counsel would not know that these decisions were not written by Jacobson himself, and after being alerted of a divorce case in which this occurred, Des Moines Register's investigative journalist Clark Kaufman dug into Jacobson's history of rulings to expose any wrongdoing. While it is not unusual for attorneys to submit proposed decisions outlining what they think judges should do, judges are to write decisions themselves and include their underlying rationale. In his rulings, Jacobson allowed the attorneys to speculate regarding the underlying rationale potentially impacting defendants' appeal rights. In an interview with Iowa Watch, Kaufman talked about Jacobson and his rulings, Kaufman's own process while writing this article, as well as tidbits from other stories depending on which aspect of the investigative process we happen to be talking about. That was basically a tip from somebody who said, uh, you need to look at all of the public court filings in this specific uh, divorce case. So I, I called up the divorce case, and as you may know, in Iowa courts online, you know, you can not only look at the disposition of a case and everything, but you can look at the actual motions and filings and everything. And in this uh, divorce case, I think it was, I'm going off memory here, I believe it was the husband's attorney who was uh, upset that uh, there had been a court hearing where basically the judge had looked at his decision that one of the parties was sort of appealing, and the judge looked at his decision and got angry as he was reading it and said, well, I didn't write this, you know, apparently recognizing that the decision was flawed in some way and got very angry about it because, of course, his name is on it. Mm -hmm. And he said that out loud, which then caused 
uh, one of the attorneys to look deeper into it, and eventually uh, the judge himself uh, gave a deposition in which he acknowledged, you know, there were, I think he said, uh, up to 200-some cases where he had just asked one party or another in a case to write the decision for him and sometimes did it without telling the opposing counsel. So he said that in a deposition, and as part of a motion in this divorce proceeding, an attorney just included an excerpt of the deposition that referenced that that specific point. So that was... uh, that was startling to read that, but as a reporter, you know, having somebody like a judge under oath admitting or acknowledging that he did that, right. and in that level of detail, I mean, that that's golden. I mean, because it's not only a public record, but the individual who's saying it is talking about his own conduct, and he's under oath, mm-hmm. so it doesn't get any um, uh, better than that in terms of sourcing. So, so so once I had that, then, then it was just a matter of trying to contact the judge himself, the other parties in the case, uh, other lawyers and judges in that area who might know about other cases, uh, you know, the traditional work, that sort of thing. So. Yeah. And so was the judge, um, the judge Jacobson, was he receptive to talking to you? No, he never did. Um, so I had to rely uh, in terms of his perspective very heavily on that uh, deposition, uh, which, which, again, I was happy to do because he's under oath and he's recalling things that are more current to when he's being asked about them as opposed to a year later when, you know, I don't know about the judge's memory, but my memory isn't all that good on things. Mm-hmm. So um, so in that sense, it, it was good to have it in writing and under oath. Um, you know, my main worry was that if, if I, I did talk to him, if he contradicted what he had said in a, under oath, then, you know, what, what do I do then? I guess I just present both versions of, of whatever he said. But, but it, it turned out that that wasn't even an issue because he wouldn't talk to me. So in other times when, like, you don't necessarily have, like, a deposition um, that's so, you know, accessible like that, yeah. what would you do if, like, there's something like this and there's a really important, you know, key figure in the, in the story and... You yeah. Touch with them. Well, I've, you know, in some cases, it, it's hard to get a hold of people by phone these days because everybody's got a cell phone and it's not necessarily listed anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you go through Facebook and that kind of thing. But it, but if somebody uh, really sort of stonewalls, you know, I don't have any, particularly if it's a public official or an elected of, official of some kind. Um, I don't have any problems showing up at their doorstep to ask a few questions. And if they decline to comment, that's fine. You know, I, I, I don't argue with people over that. But it's just when they don't respond or don't answer emails. How did you know who to talk to? Like, wh- what were sort of your first steps when you were going about after that initial case? Yeah. On that particular story involving the judge's ghostwriting, it, w- it was pretty easy to determine who I needed to talk to. I mean, you got the specific case uh, that's at hand, that divorce case. Mm-hmm. And of course, the attorneys are all publicly identified, so I was able to contact them and um, you know, see if they, they would at least be agreeable to talking to me. But then separate from that, you know, the hierarchy of the court system, I knew that uh, I'd probably want to talk to the chief judge in that district to see if he knew that this uh, district court judge that he, in some sense, supervises, 
uh, if he, you know what exactly he knew about all this, but also to find out if other judges in the district were doing it. Uh, but but I had asked him, you know, whether he was aware of this going on with other judges. Um, and then, of course, I asked the state court administrator's office, um, you know, what they were aware of, uh, since that's sort of the next level up in the hierarchy. And they were good because they were able to at least refer me to some Supreme Court decisions that said, this is wrong and here's why it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So I, I was able to quote from those in the article. Uh, so, so that was a pretty easy story to determine, you know, who I needed to talk to. Um, and then it also seems like you must have gone through a lot of court records and things like that. Yeah. Um, sort of what are, what's your process with that when you have, you know, a lot of material like that to go through, like court records in particular, public information? Yeah, this, this one wasn't too difficult um, because there were really only maybe a, a half dozen uh, different records that I, that I sort of had to track in a story that I had done about a lawyer who was based here in Des Moines had been uh, embroiled in a lot of ethical dilemmas. Uh, he, he's a, he was involved in dozens and dozens of cases where he was not only the lawyer for the parties, but actually the plaintiff. So he was suing other individuals on his own behalf and acting as the lawyer and filing ethics mm -hmm. complaints against judges and colleagues. And, and to track all that, uh, because there were the whole story was about how litigious he is. So there's a vast array of both state cases and federal cases that I had to track, and some of them overlapped with the same defendants. So he would lose a case, but then turn right around and sue the person for the same reason in a, you know in a different court or a different venue. Mm. Um, so to track all that was kind of a nightmare, and basically it's just. Uh, a matter of organizing and everything. And and this guy is now suing us, which I knew he would do, uh, because he is very litigious, and that was the whole thrust of the story. So he's now suing us. So uh, keeping track of those records was, uh, right from the get-go, was critical. Um, and now, of course, you know, because he's suing us, he's... Uh, as part of the discovery process, uh, I think he's demanding access to all of those records. So... We'll see where that goes. What is it like to be sued? Uh, it's not good, <laughs> yeah, as you can imagine. Um, but in in this case, I just knew it was coming, just because of the nature of this the story, uh -huh. uh, which basically had to do with the fact that he, he has some uh, mental disabilities, which he's acknowledged in court. Um, but those mental disabilities seem to be fueling his litigious uh, conduct or at least the two things seem to be related in some way, which he also acknowledges. Um, but I, I just never run into a situation where somebody had these acknowledged disabilities but also had a law license. Um, but, but, but yeah, we, we knew right from the get-go that he was probably going to come after us, uh, and he has. So, you know, you just prepare for it and... Uh, um, you know, you, you know what's coming. <laughs> you can't do anything. I've, I think I've only been sued... Is this the first time? It might be the yeah. first time. When we come back, more on the process of investigative journalism. That's next, when the Iowa Watch Connection continues. The 
The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. Lily Bolke is a senior at Grinnell College. She was co-editor of the student newspaper The Scarlet and Black during the 2017-2018 academic year and an Iowa Watch intern in summer 2018. As part of that work, she conducted an extended interview with investigative reporter Clark Kaufman of the Des Moines Register. Here's more of their conversation. Before the break, Des Moines Register reporter Clark Kaufman began to explain the details of his story about retired Iowa 3B Judicial District Court Judge Edward Jacobson, who allowed attorneys to write entire decisions for him, including the underlying rationales. While Jacobson himself made the decisions regarding which side would win, the attorneys could not have known his underlying reasons for rulings, and for this reason his practices could affect defendants' appeal rights in the future. As the conversation went on, Kaufman expanded upon how he goes about researching and writing investigative articles, including examples from other stories, such as one about the Cass County prosecutor who would falsify moving violations to make more money, as well as the Adalisa turkey processing plant, which Kaufman exposed as having not provided its workers with proper care or proper pay. The men who needed care for their mental disabilities were not provided with any and were paid what came out to be about 41 cents an hour. What were some of like your main takeaways from the article? Like is there anything in particular that you want to like that you would sort of wanted to point out? Well, you know, the the main thing this is sort of alluded to in some of those Supreme Court uh rulings about why judges shouldn't let lawyers do all their work for them. Um, I mean, my main concern right from the get-go wasn't that a judge was relying heavily on the attorneys to sort of draft a proposed order because that's very routine and that helps the judge turn out uh, a decision that's, you know, timely and people aren't waiting months for it. And he even said in his deposition that one of the reasons he did this was to make sure he didn't violate that 60-day rule. He wanted to get these decisions out fast. But, but the one element that, you know, I sort of worried might be lost on readers was that he wasn't just letting the lawyers uh, dis, uh, write the decision favoring one, one person or another. I mean, the judge still said, okay, I, you know, I, I think this party has won, and because I think you've, you've won, I'll let you write the decision. So that he, he felt the decision was still his, but the critical element for me was that he was letting the lawyers write the underlying rationale for his decision, which, of course, they would have no way of knowing. And right. it's that underlying rationale for the decision uh, that would form the basis of any sort of appeal or a court decision on an appeal because, uh, you know, anybody can appeal any outcome, but, but then you have to attack the judge's rationale. And if the rationale was just made up by some other lawyer, that has huge implications uh, for people being able to appeal that. Um, so it, it was really, um, I, I think I'm, one of the legal experts I, I talked to might have alluded to that in sort of a general way, but, but that to me was the most troubling aspect of it was, uh, 
there was no thought get, get given to how people's appeal rights were being undermined by this. But I don't know. You know, maybe the average reader doesn't care. That might be a little too deep or esoteric. I don't know. But. And then when you were looking to see if sort of like if any or like before before the story, did did anybody seem to know about this, or was it being handled at all, or yeah, did, your, I, did your article kind of break it open? I I don't think so. There wasn't much talk about it, and even. You know, other than the lawyers in that one divorce case, who who were sort of mortified by it all happening, um, there clearly was one lawyer in that uh, district or county um, who had done this on more than one occasion, written a decision at the judge's request. But it was one of those things that people, if they were aware of it, they weren't really talking about it, which is kind of bizarre. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of. Uh, Oh, years ago, I had done a story about uh, the prosecutor in Cass County. He had devised a system whereby when people got tickets there for speeding or whatever, he would let people uh, basically buy their way out of a ticket. Um, so instead of pleading guilty to uh, speeding, which would have an impact on their driver's license and their insurance rates, right. potentially, he would say, well, just Okay, let's say the ticket was for $100. He would say, well, you pay me $400. Uh, not pay me personally, but pay the county or you know, the court system $400. I'll write up uh, a bunch of fictitious offenses to correspond to that fine. And you plead guilty to all these fictitious offenses that um, they're not moving violations. So it's a defective windshield wiper, defective tail light, all these mm -hmm. things that were completely made up. People would plead guilty to a whole stack of those that would add up to X hundreds of dollars. It would cost them more, but they wouldn't have a moving violation on their record. And so he cooked up this whole scheme whereby he did this. I mean, it's blatantly illegal. And he did eventually get kicked out of office. But all the lawyers in that county knew about it. And they all sort of took advantage of that, but nobody really talked about it. No, nobody really, uh, there was never an attorney who called up the newspaper and said, you know, this is really illegal and underhanded and it shouldn't be happening, which always bothered me. It took a citizen who'd been offered one of these deals and rejected it um, to call me up and say, hey, I got this letter from the county attorney offering to have me plead guilty to a bunch of fictitious charges uh, I don't think this is right. And if that citizen hadn't uh, called and sent me that letter, I mean, I would never have known about it either. It's kind of scary. Do you have any ideas as to why they do that? Just because it benefits them? Uh, yeah, I suppose because it benefits them. In Cass County, I suppose lawyers always looked at it as well. You know, I might have a client who would want to take advantage of this offer. But people who maybe don't have as much money to spend just have to bite the bullet. And, and uh, so the average citizen knew it was wrong. But, but the lawyers and, of course, the judges who signed off on these things. I remember talking to one judge, and he said, uh, I think his exact quote was, I just signed whatever they put in front of me. Uh, again, which sort of ch sends a chill down your spine when you hear that. But um, I wonder why they decided to be a judge. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Not the most rewarding uh, line of work, I would think, if that's all you're doing. But, but, yeah, that's, you know, as a reporter, of course, you're always glad to bring things to light. Uh, you know, to be the first one to expose something like that. But as a citizen, you, you're, you're always horrified that uh, stuff like that uh, has remained uh, under wraps. What are what are some of like your favorite stories that you've ever done? 
Uh, well, probably um, the Cass County story uh, uh, was one of my favorites, just just because uh, I like paperwork and I like to have things documented as opposed mm-hmm. to just relying on human sources. So when you're dealing with court records, there's lots of paper and everything's in writing and right. depositions and all that. Um, so that that was. Uh, a rewarding story to to work on, but also it exposed some really serious wrongdoing. And uh, that story was a finalist for the Pulitzer that year for for investigative reporting. So, so that that one was rewarding in that sense. But probably the most rewarding one uh, that I've done was the story about. Um, it's a few years old now, so you probably hadn't heard about it, but. Um, there was this so-called bunkhouse in Adalissa in eastern Iowa where uh, mentally disabled men had been working for 40 years at a turkey processing plant. And they'd been working for a salary that averaged out to about 41 cents an hour. All these guys had been brought up from Texas back in the late 60s and early 70s basically to work on this labor camp, like something out of the Great Depression or John Steinbeck. you know. And they were just getting these... Uh, yeah, after deductions for their room and board at this bunkhouse, which was basically just an old converted schoolhouse where they all lived, um, they were taking home about 41 cents an hour. And it was just uh, horrific. And, and the, int- the interesting thing about that case was we had written about it, I think, in the early 80s or late 70s. And then everybody sort of forgot about it. And a lot of people... Um, who were in the disability community and that kind of thing had just assumed that it closed after the register brought oh, wow. it all to light. You know, in 1979, I think I was still in high school, so I, I was completely unaware. And then one night I got a call from the sister of one of the men living there, and she explained the whole situation. All these guys have been living there for decades, working for pennies, you know, per hour in this turkey processing plant. All of them mentally disabled. All of them should have been living in a fully licensed care facility. This place didn't have a license of any kind. It was just, it literally was just a labor camp. Des Moines Register investigative journalist Clark Kaufman speaking about his work with Iowa Watch intern Lily Volke of Grinnell College in July 2018. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can connect with us online iowawatch.org. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.